John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Here at the Cinephiles, we like to roll out the info on our upcoming movie a little bit at a time. First with a clue, which hopefully hits somewhere between totally obvious and completely obscure. Then maybe a couple of pictures, by which point most people have a fair idea what's coming up. And if there's one thing about cinephiles, they are not shy about voicing their opinions. Most of the time, the responses are pretty positive, but every once in a while, the title reveal is met with a fair amount of controversy and even disdain. Some of you were thrilled to hear that John and I are talking about Zack Snyder's 300, based on the graphic novel by Frank Miller. But a fair number of you think that we are absolutely crazy. The fact is, 300, with its ripped abs, stylized violence, hyper-masculinity, and computer-generated sets, is a controversial film, to say the least. It has loyal fans and a fair amount of detractors, but that's part of what makes it so interesting to talk about. So, if you haven't seen it, do a few crunches, strap on your shield and cape, and head on over to cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream every film we've ever reviewed including 300. And if you happen to be supporting us on Patreon, you can hear John and I talk about the strange similarities between our last film, Field of Dreams, and one we discussed years ago, a little Steven Spielberg flick called Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So that's 300 this Friday on the podcast, and a comparison of Field of Dreams to Close Encounters of the Third Kind on Patreon.com slash The Cinephiles. This is blasphemy! This is madness! This is Sparta! <laughs> Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, its history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker. I am sheltering in place, and I am also a directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. 
Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a voiceover artist, writer, producer, and host here in Los Angeles, California. And what I'm saying now, the CEO of the Outlaw Nation. There you go. Just trying to make that all happen. So uh, that's what I'll call myself from now on for this, uh, for the Outlaw Nation. Does Lindley have to address you as Mr. Chairman now? And only during business hours from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., which is what we've established. Well, that, that makes sense. Um, uh, so uh, the movie we are talking yes. you know, I'll tell you how this movie came about. So as most yeah. of you know, I always try to do a fair amount of research before each of these movies. And John and I came up with a list of things we really wanted to do. And I immediately ordered them from Amazon on Blu-ray. And Amazon is not shipping everything in the next day or two. And they, they sent me a message saying, yeah. hey, you're not going to get these things until mid-April. <laughs> and so instead, I, I, I called up John and I sent him a list of, here's the movies I own. <laughs> <laughs> which one would you be interested in doing and the one that he picked was strangely enough the very first one on the list because alphabetically i put movies with number titles at the beginning of my mm. list of uh, of films and so the film we're doing today chosen in an incredibly <laughs> scientific manner is Zack snyder's <laughs> 300 based on the frank miller graphic novel hell yeah <laughs> I'm excited about it because this is this is I mean I, this is also a film that I own and I am absolutely remiss that there is not a 4k version of this movie out there for people to enjoy because this is such a visually beautiful film and one that I go back to a lot uh, so I was excited that this was on your list of films that you own plus I know we're both fans of the Frank Miller graphic novel you I think you have it on one of your shelves there behind you uh, and we're excited and, and I love this time period that it addresses and the story which is a historically true story, maybe not historically true within the movie, but historically true story about this this battle. It is, yes, definitely a true story. This movie, <laughs> look, we're gonna, I'll talk a little bit about the history because, of course, I love history, but right. nobody thinks that this is accurate. You know what I mean? Like, this isn't trying <laughs> to represent any kind of reality. I don't think anyone is fooled into thinking this is accurate. Um, but one of the yeah. reasons I was so excited about talking about this, and it, it sort of occurred to me after we picked the film, was we get to talk about a person who was hugely influential on me in a certain time of my life, and that is Frank Miller. Uh, you know, yep. normally we talk about directors and actors and people like that, and here I just really I I think there is an argument to be made that he might be the greatest comic book cr creator in the history of comics. I would argue he's in the top five of most influential. 100%. For damn sure. And, and part of the reason I say that is like, obviously, you can't underestimate Stan Lee or Jack Kirby. You know, they're hugely important. The Alan Moore, one of the great writers of all time, Neil Gaiman. There's so many great artists we could talk about. Todd McFarlane, Neil Adams, you know, so mm. many people that are hugely important and influential. John Romita Sr., tons and tons and tons. But I don't think there's anybody who is both an artist and a writer who is so influential in both realms and really shapes comics going forward in the way that Frank Miller does for a certain mm. era. Um, and so uh, I want to give a little biography of him. He's born in 1957. He wanted to be a comic book artist from like five years old. He drew, mm. drew a picture, I forget what, what his first drawing was, and said, Mom, this is what I do want to do for the rest of my life. And he, as a, as a young teenager, was drawing and sending things out to uh, the comic book companies and comic artists for comments. And the person that he hooked onto was Neil Adams. And Neil Adams mm. is 
definitely on the list of one of the greatest comic book artists of all time. I had a bunch of his comics, including the groundbreaking Green Lantern, Green Arrow series, which I absolutely love. And, and he saw something in this kid who was 14, 15 years old at the time. And at 17, he came to New York and Neil Adams got him his first jobs uh, for DC and for, uh, I think, DC in the late 70s. And it sounds like uh, Neil was pretty hard on Frank, a very tough mm-hmm. mentor. But what's interesting is what he said is, he said, you can't teach a Frank Miller. All he could do was help him think like an artist. Hmm. I think wow. that's an interesting statement. Yeah. Um, and he's doing, you know, fill in work at DC and Marvel. And then uh, what makes him, what brings him to our attention is the comic book Daredevil was failing. And there's this moment mm. where, and at the time, Daredevil wasn't that cool a character. And right. when a comic book is failing, that is sometimes the time when the, um, when the studio, when the, when the comic book company is willing to have someone come in and do something because the yeah. book's probably going to get canceled anyway. So he comes in on Daredevil first to draw and then writes his first issue where he writes and draws it uh, in 1981. And that first mm. issue is the first appearance of Elektra. And mm-hmm. I, I think his run on Daredevil is one of the great, great runs in comics of all time. Um. Mm-hmm. Do you remember? I actually meant to ask you this earlier. Do you remember how you first experienced Frank Miller as a comic book artist? Yeah, yeah. I've told this many. I told the story a couple of times on 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 the Outlaw Nation shows and and requests and people ask questions about how I got into comic books. Listen, I enjoyed comic books for what they were. My dad would buy them and bring them home off the rack. You know, those three in a pack type things, and just to give his kids something to read while he was like trying to do something at the house. You know, here, read this. Things of that nature. I would go and buy, but I didn't get into. I didn't understand what comic books meant until I went and signed up at a comic book shop in Virginia, in Woodbridge, Virginia, at the old uh, Marumsco Plaza. And there was a, uh, a comic book shop there. And I remember I went at 15 years old and I said, I want to start a folder. Uh, I've heard this because other friends were talking, telling me about it at high school. And I was working now uh, uh, doing a part-time job, earning money so I could go out to the movies or whatever, because uh, that's how it was in my house. And I wanted to buy comic books. So I started started a folder and it was uh, maybe within the first three or four weeks that I was there, I heard that there was a secret meeting that people would have every <laughs> Saturday in the back room of the comic book uh, shop and you would just sit there. He'd close the comic book shop and you would sit there for two hours and read comic books amongst other people and then compare notes. And it would be like almost like a semi book club. And I remember that Dark Knight Returns, the first issue was something that they said, this is one you've got to read off his Daredevil stuff and blah 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 and so that's when I discovered Frank Miller I still own the first cop first issues of each one of those four Dark Knight Returns ones I have them saved in my closet they never leave my side and whenever where I go and it's he just changed my life he changed me uh so powerfully about what comic books can do and I've been a massive fan ever since through Sin City then coming back to rediscover the Daredevil run uh, which he did with uh, Karen Page and with uh, Elektra and Daredevil all that whole run that he did and and so much more man and Frank Miller has just been an essential part of my love of comics since that day uh, when I was 15 years old yeah so for me um, I, I know again I've told the story before too that mm. my dad 
whose comic book collection had been thrown away by his mom when he first went into high school. <laughs> and these were like, you know, 40s and 50s Batman Superman comics. He, ah! I know, right? He brought me comics all the time uh, when I was sick or when, you know, he yeah. would just bring it home from the 7-Eleven or whatever. So I started reading Superman and Batman when I was really young. And what I think is, so there was a, just like you, there was a comic book store in downtown Tibram that was called The Attic. Mm. And the attic was a classic, almost kind of in a basement, and it had that dusty smell, and there were a couple of video games in the front, and the owner was playing a game of chess all the time with some customer, and it was just, you know, geek haven. It's exactly what you picture as the old suburban comic book shop. And yeah. I came in there, and he sa- and asked him kind of, what should I read? And he said, well, have you read these? And he pulled out, and it's a compilation of it was called Electra, and what it really was was it was all the Electra parts of that Daredevil run. So they mm. just pulled out the Electra parts, which is you know several four years or something that he was on this comic. They just pulled out the Electra yeah. parts and put it together. That was the first experience I had with Frank Miller, and that was amazing. And I read that maybe a, a year before uh, Ronan and Dark Knight came out. And mm-hmm. when when Dark Knight Returns came out, I I, I can't. I can't begin to tell you how influential this was on me. I really think there is a good chance if Frank Miller and Alan Moore and a few other people didn't start in really hitting in 85, 86, 87, Mm -hmm. that's right when I was graduating from high school, I might have dropped out of comics. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because they are what, what they did in the late 80s, and in particular, Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One and Daredevil Born Again, Mm -hmm. they went oh, this is an art form. There's real writing mm-hmm. here. There's real thought here. There's real drama. It's dark and it's gritty. I cannot begin to tell you how big a deal this was for me. Huge. Yeah. I think you, uh, we share that in that very similar experience, Stephen. I'm sure a lot of people listening to us had this a similar experience as well when these comics came out, if they're of a certain age, because it really changed them. And it opened the door to understanding how to appreciate and enjoy the artistic possibilities right. of comic books, right? It's like the it's like when you grow up watching, you know, animated films and you watch, you know, fun films, whatever. The second, the moment you watch that one film that shows you what film can actually right. do with its medium, that you're a, you're forever changed. And I think Frank Miller ha- has given that experience to so many kids. And I bet there are kids who are still, who still discover it at 10, 12, 13, 14 years old, the first time they read Dark Knight Returns, and they are completely changed. Uh, from that moment on uh, or Ronin or Sin City or or like you or even V for Vendetta for the Alan Moore side right. or Watchmen it just changes them about what the possibilities of comic books can be it's what taught me that comic books were just an art form you know like I mean I always love them but the idea that they are an yeah. art form like film like novels like plays that they are not limited to superhero stuff that they can be dark that they can be funny that they can be adult mm. they can be complicated and literary they can be poetic they can be anything they want and I and it was that yeah. discovery that went oh here's this thing I love and now I'm discovering that it could be so much more than what I thought it could be mm-hmm. you know so he does Dark Knight Returns mm-hmm. obviously a huge hit does Batman Year One with David Mizzicelli, who, which is absolutely, that is, that is the Batman origin story. I don't think we have all the Batman movies, the resurgence of comic book stuff without 
Frank Miller. I don't think that exists. Yeah. And and then he yep. uh, has a big fight with DC and Marvel over censorship because Frank Miller wants to do these dark, gritty, violent things. And he and and DC and Marvel had a had ratings and they wanted to put ratings on things. Yeah. And Frank believed that that was against freedom of speech. And he split off with those from those big companies and went off to Dark Horse and did Sin City. Man. Mm-hmm. What a groundbreaking book, both in terms of art, in terms of content. Those are ones I still come back to. I still read. I still enjoy. I have them sitting up on the shelf all the time. I enjoy it. That's why I was so shocked that they were able to pull off Sin City as a movie. I hope one day we do that on on the Cinephiles. Um, I was so shocked at what they were able to do, bring all those stories together, bring all those characters, and make them live within the world, the crazy, crazy, uh, uh, hypercharged noir world that he creates in these Sin City books. So yeah, all of it, Steve, I couldn't, I devoured these things. They were sexy. They were gritty. They were dirty. They were, um, uh, they were still the, the, uh, the, the good versus evil type vibe, except the good was a little grayer and the evil was uh, even more brutal. And there was so much that they, uh, confronted in these books. And thank God, Frank Miller found a way to, you know, have his voice be on the page again, uh, with the way he wanted to do it. You know, so many, again, so much of that is, uh, for me, very influential to get me into noir as well. Well, and this is the thing is that, you know, Frank Miller was inspired by Mickey Spillane. He loves Sam Peckinpah and what we need to say, and this is something that's definitely going to come up as we talk about 300 is there is a particular Mm. kind of hyper-masculine, hyper-violent, exaggerated, archetypal thing that Frank Miller loves that I Mm -hmm. loved too at a certain time in my life. And now looking at it, I have some more complicated feelings about, about it, even though, uh, you know, for it is amazing, amazing work. And and then after Mm -hmm. Sin City in in 98, he does 300 with his wife, Lynn Varley, who had been the color artist for everything he had done in color. One of the most brilliant color artists and painters in the history of comic books and 300 is just a spectacular graphic novel. And, yeah. and anyone who loves the film, you owe it to yourself to go look at this book because you will be blown away at how mm. much came out of 300, uh, the yeah. comic. Also, the unusual nature of the graphic novel of this particular one, it wasn't the standard comic book shape. It was longer. Right. It was in the hardback form. So it required you to look at it almost like a movie because every page was almost like a film cell that you were watching and experiencing as you were reading the book. Well, and, and, and just a piece of art, like unlike any yeah. anything you'd ever seen in a, in a, in a comic narrative form. Um, and, uh, and part of this is that Frank Miller had been obsessed with the 300 Spartan story since he was six years old. He had saw, seen mm. the movie, the 300 Spartans. And all of this, of course, is based on some history, some of which might be accurate, a lot of which. <laughs> and, I, and I'm not even talking about 300. I'm talking about the actual yeah, yeah. history from Herodotus and those people because – there are no contemporary accounts, and there's a lot. If you wanted to get into the weeds with some historians, you could hear some <laughs> debates about what exactly do we really think happened uh, during this time. Yeah. And, you know, the answer is that we really don't know. And there's sort of a, particularly with this movie and this comic, a a, a big T and little t conversation. Big T truth versus mm. little t truth is that there are there is a bigger truth that Frank Miller wants to get at here and to get at that bigger truth, he is definitely sacrificing any concept of realism oh, yeah. at all. 
um, Warner Brothers and Zack Snyder really wanted to make a movie of this. And Zack Snyder was a huge Frank Miller fan. But at the mm-hmm. same time, which I didn't know, Michael Mann was planning to make a movie about the 300 Spartans based on the wow. book Gates of Fire, which is a really good book about this subject as well. So there's a mm-hmm. kind of something we've heard before. We heard about it with Spartacus. is some competition. <laughs> Who's going to get their thing going first? And Frank is not really interested in having anyone make a movie of his comic because he's picturing them trying to translate his comic to a regular film. And Zack Snyder right. is continually tells him, no, no, I want this to look exactly like the comic. And the first thing they did, and, and he hasn't raised the money yet either. So the first thing they did was they took the comic, they scanned it into a computer, they Photoshopped out all of the lettering, and then mm-hmm. they uh, turned that into an animatic which is what you would use for animation to tell a story. And they had Scott Glenn narrate it. Hmm. And they thought this thing looks really, really cool. They take it to the studio. They take it to Frank Miller. They both say, nope, not going to do it. <laughs> um, so then they build maquettes, which is the little statues of all that we use for developing characters for animation. They develop, build those of all the characters and they go, man, this stuff looks so cool. This is so exciting. They take it to Frank Miller. They take it to the studio Nope. But what the, what, the, <laughs> what the studio does do is they give them a little bit of seed money to shoot something. And so they get, with a very little bit of money, a guy dressed up like a Spartan against a green screen, mm-hmm. and they do this 360 battle shot. And they bring that to Frank Miller and Warner Brothers, and they say, okay, let's do it. Because that's yeah. when they go, oh, you're really – you're act- when you said you wanted to look like the comic – that's really what you're going to do. Um, so it goes yeah. into production in 2005. The budget is $60 million. And what we should say is this movie is made unlike any other movie had been made. It's the, it's, it's mm-hmm. CG has advanced to the place that they really basically everything you see in the background is all generated by computer. There are over 50, I think it's 1500 special effects shots in the film. It's basically every scene, every shot in the film is a special effect shot. And the complexity yeah. of how you have to make this movie that all has these virtual backgrounds everywhere, it's crazy. Yeah, I just love it. My, my girlfriend walked through while I was rewatching it yesterday and she goes, this whole movie's on Photoshop. And I go, yes, yes, yes it actually is, yes. And, and I'm happy for it. Well, and I think part of why it works, as opposed to, to some stuff that we've seen that really doesn't work, it's not trying to be realistic. This is no. This isn't the real world. It says yeah. this is graphic. This is art. You're living in a painting, and because of that, I think mm-hmm. we cut it slack in all these ways because the design elements are so gorgeous. And what's the difference between a film like this and Fast and Furious, where they're flying out of cars and flying out of planes and going from one building to another in a car? It's all fantastical. This film is fantastical, but it has, as you said, Steve, a hyper sense of masculinity throughout. Uh, not, But I, I think not even to the expense of women, because the only woman in the piece is incredibly uh, strong Agreed. and powerful uh, in in her own way. So it's basically hyper strength humanity, I guess, is what you want to say going on throughout this movie. This idea of what it means to be a warrior, and I guess overall is what he's trying to show throughout the movie. And and I love it for it, you know, because it's it's a separate entity than something else you might see. Because certainly you could argue those Fast and Furious movies or the Schwarzenegger movies or Stallone movies were all about hyper masculinity as well. Well, and I think. Look, 
you're signing up for this film. You got to kind of know what you're getting into, you know, and the, exactly. and it is a lot. It's a lot of a lot. And if, you, <laughs> and if, you, and it's the same, you know, honestly, it's the same. I wouldn't recommend Sin City to my mom. You know what I mean? Right. She's right. not supposed to to read that comic or watch that movie. This movie yeah, is read not, the room. yeah, this movie is not for everyone. <laughs> it is violent. Mm-hmm. It is filled with testosterone it is problematic in some ways that we might discuss um but it is also awesome in the plate and where it is awesome it is awesome yep would you like to get into its awesomeness let's do i just i just put on my abs so let's go do it let's get into it you painted them on you know to make them really painted them on man there's some serious abs but right now we open with heavy music and immediately right from the logos, you see the color theme and the color control, all mm-hmm. of which comes right out of Lynn Varley's palette. And we see some skulls and there's lightning and we someone is holding a baby. And what we hear is that in the Spartan world, they examined each male child. And if the child was lacking in any way, deformed or weak or sickly, they would toss that baby over the cliff and let them die. Right from and- the beginning, you get it. This is about masculinity and the ability to be a warrior, right? Because even they shoot it from below and you see the skulls. Those are probably baby skulls uh, that are just looking up from uh, from that vantage point. Yeah, and, and then what we hear is that basically by the time a kid could stand, they are, to use the words of our narrator, baptized in the fire of combat. And we yeah. see this cool. kid fighting an adult and that is Zack Snyder's son. <laughs> course it is and he gets kind of disarmed and knocked down and he stands up does the total bruce lee wipe the blood off you know and goes on the attack taught never to retreat never to surrender toward the death on the battlefield in service to sparta was the greatest glory he could achieve in his life and we see that iconic shield and then we hear that at age seven Kids are taken away from their mothers and they're plunged into a world of violence. And this is called the Agogi. And this is all based on real Spartan history and that they are trained in every kind of combat. Um, by the way, in actual history, they were also trained in music and art and culture at the Agogi. So, but we don't see that in the film. Yeah, you can't let that it, culture stuff get in the way. We're not going to get into that. <laughs> and we just see it is brutal. Kids beating other kids. They have kids that are just strapped up, tied up, and beaten with a rod and a lash. And it's all to just make them super tough. So, listen, you might feel that this isn't a good thing to do to kids growing up. But this is the movie that we're in. And then we're off in the snow, and this kid is a little older. And we hear that basically there's like a a final test where they're put out in the wild. Left to pit his wits and will against nature's fury, for he would return to his people as Spartan. But not at all. Again, everything in this shot except that kid is CG. The flurries of snow is CG. The background is CG. The big wolf is CG. Everything we see is CG. Just a tiny, tiny bit of set. And we see the wolf approaching, and the, this our main character kind of backs up into this crevice in the cliff. It's not fear that grips him, only a heightened sense of things. And the wolf howls and leaps forward, and he impales it on his spear, which we see in the him in the real world. And on the background on the cliff wall, we see the shadow of the wolf being impaled on the spear. Yeah. It is super cool, and it is exactly right out of the comic book. Exactly. I remember that's one of the panels that has always stayed with me, that shot of the wolf. And the big, you know, they had they had the graphic novel on the set. 
And the big question they asked every single day when they had to make a decision is, what would Frank do? <laughs> and we hear this rising chor- chorus. The, the music, by the way, is by Tyler Barks, I think. Uh, we see this helmet in the snow, and that boy comes out of... He's out of focus, and he comes forward. He comes into the shot in focus. Everyone bows down, and it is revealed that this is, in fact, the next king. This is Leonidas. How King Leonidas! Ho, ho, ho! A beast approaches. It was King Leonidas himself who provoked it. And we cut to a rising sun that's just blasting. It's like brighter and bigger than any sun you've seen in film. And these horses riding out of the sun in slow motion. It is super dramatic. And this is maybe one of only two shots that was not on a soundstage. This is actually shot outside. Everything else is on a soundstage. (laughs) Um, I love the music here. The music throughout this movie it, not just the choral stuff, but the pulsating drum beats and the the do 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 like that kind of stuff just gets you into this is a rock and roll totally. film. This is absolutely a rock and roll historical film, and it's so great in that approach. The horses ride up again. The beautiful color palette of Lynn Varley, and they and there's this messenger who pulls out of a bag a bunch of skulls. And then we cut to... With crowns on. Yeah, and then we cut to Leonidas, uh, Gerard Butler, who is training with his son. Um, Had you seen Gerard Butler before this? I don't think... I probably had in one of his, like, smaller roles, but he hadn't stuck out to me in any way, shape, or form. So when I'd heard he was the lead of this, I didn't know what to expect from him, but immediately from the trailer, you knew that this was a guy who was owning this role, so you wanted to see even more of him in this part totally he's so and again if you look at the graphic novel like he embodies that that Mm. intense shape of that particular character um and he's giving his son a little lesson about what it means to be a warrior and in particular we hear this idea that um a spartan's true strength is the warrior next to him and that thematically is something that's going to come up over and over again and then here comes the messenger and the messenger is brought in by dominic west uh, who plays a sort of bad guy in this film. Before you speak, Persian, know that in Sparta, everyone, even a king's messenger, is held accountable for the words of his voice. And the messenger says, earth and water. We don't know exactly what that means, but the but Leonidas says, you wrote all the way from Persia to for earth and water? Um, and <laughs> then uh, our queen, Queen Gorgo, played by Lena Headey. Yeah, Lena Headey. <laughs> who, who, of course, we know is Cersei. <laughs> Yes. Um, uh, yes. And cost me a Schmodown match. Way oh, really? Because uh, I said Lena Headley instead of Lena, Lena Headey. And uh, I lost the match to Sam Levine that way, which has been uh, an angry moment in my life. I hated that, uh, that I hadn't memorized that name. But yes, she's fantastic here. Very strong. Um, and yeah, but has the interaction. By the way, I would have lost that match in exactly the same way because I had to, <laughs> I had to remind myself as I was writing my notes, I was sitting there going, it's Heedy, it's Heedy, it's not Headley, it's Heedy, it's Heedy. <laughs> so right, I totally would right, have blown right. it on the same thing. <laughs> um, and she says, Do not be coy or stupid, Persian. You can afford neither in Sparta. Now, yeah. why is she talking smack to this guy? <laughs> like, well, I, this is. This is strength. Both of them are just saying because, and I think because they probably heard, and as the Persian is about to tell them that the other Greece uh, uh, states or whatever they were at that time 
have also uh, been approached. And so I'm sure word has traveled fast. So they were expecting this emissary. And of course, David Wenham, who is, I think, the name of the actor who does the, a lot of the voiceover yeah. in the movie, he has said this beast is coming. Right. And so Leonidas brought this beast. And so you know that this is the first kind of uh, extension of the beast. And so they seem to be prepared to address this person in a powerful yeah, way. Yeah, I just go like... the. <laughs> they're so mean to him right away. I'm not saying they should have made a deal with him, but like <laughs> it doesn't seem like they're negotiating tactics or that, that smooth. No. Um, and he sort of takes offense by being spoken to about from a woman this way. And he makes a big threat. Basically Sparta needs to, you know, give in to the, to the Persian empire because he talks about the army so massive that it shakes the mm. world and, and that Xerxes is a God King. And, and to be really clear, Persia is the largest empire in the world at this time. You know, it is mm-hmm. a huge, huge empire. And Greece is really small and weak by comparison. And then, uh, and then as, as, as you just brought up, uh, Leonidas says, look, we've heard the Athenians already turned you down. And his line is, And if those philosophers and uh, boy lovers have found that kind of nerve. And this is a nice little subtle reference to the fact, and this I don't know if people remember, but around this time it was starting to come out more and more about the historical things with uh, what the Greeks were doing with young boys uh, at this time. There was uh, remember that scene in Birdcage where they have the bowl, as just put the soup in the bowl, and I think it's a uh, it looks like Greek, you know, older Greek guy having sex with a younger Greek They're boy in there. So. Yeah, yeah, sure they are. They're playing leapfrog, yeah. Um, so, you know, so this had been starting to come out a little more in the pop culture or mainstream acceptance. They weren't just philosophers. They also had sex with young boys. And what was that all about? So uh, it, just in that one line, you get that it's there's a little bit of a historical shot. Well, there. but this is and this is where I'm going to I'm going to point out some historical things. <laughs> there's a yeah, lot please. of controversy about this film in terms of its portrayal of Persians, in terms of its portrayal of Spartans and all, all sorts of stuff. And one of them, mm-hmm. there's a historian that basically says, and I like the way he puts this, he says it's pretty strange for Spartans who practiced and this was his frame institutional pederasty to comment on the boy lovers of the Athenians. It's like the Spartans were just as likely to have this behavior as the Athenians, maybe more so. Um, so, yeah. so this was not really true. And again, it, it creates this masculine ideal yeah. of the Spartans. Straight male masculine exactly. ideal. Exactly. Yes. And there's this moment where the Persian messenger says, choose your next words carefully. They may be your last as king. And he looks around and there's a breeze and he looks at the kids and he looks at his wife and he looks down and then he draws his sword. And the thing is, when he looks at Lena Headey, Lena Headey does this like subtle nod Mm -hmm. to approve what he's about to do because she knows he's about to come at this guy hardcore. And so she kind of like does that kind of restrained nod, understanding this is a strong step that's going to lead us into war with these massive uh, numbers of Persians, uh, but it has to be done. And and to be clear, killing a messenger is against all the rules. I mean, if we have Mm -hmm. rules, that's, you know, because if you can't have a messenger, then how can you have parleys? You You know, you can't. Right. And the messenger is shocked and says, this is madness. And then in one of our most iconic film moments, <laughs> he yells, This is Sparta! 
and kicks that guy into the what appears to be a, a bottomless pit that we a bottomless that we just pit. happen to have in the middle of our you know our our building, um, and then all the it's spart- a pit of despair. Yeah. It's the pit of despair. It's, it's a pit of despair. And all the other Spartans wipe out all the Persians. It looks amazing. And for mm-hmm. a trailer moment, the this is Sparta moment and that kick is awesome. And even the way the fabric on the guy's clothing moves as he goes, flies into the pit is kind of amazing. Uh, two things about this. Leonidas didn't do this. It was a Spartan king about 10 years before who actually killed this messenger. And um, the idea that Leonidas started the war with Persia just isn't true either. Again, I'm not criticizing the movie not for being historically accurate. I just mm-hmm. like the history. So here's a little bit of the history is that is that the real thing that started this is the Battle of Marathon because the Persians, which again, largest empire in the world at the time, sent kind of an expeditionary force to Greece and the Athenians landed near Athens, getting off their ships and the Athenians saw them and immediately attacked them before the Persians could really um, react or form up defenses and they wiped out probably about 5,000 Persians which is a small army for the Persians, um, but a pretty big army for the Greeks. And this was at the time that Darius, Xerxes' father, was the king of Persia. And he's a huge, huge, powerful warlord. And they really couldn't stomach this little country uh, messing with them that way. And that's when they started to send the big armies under Xerxes, Darius' son. And now we have Leonidas climbing this cliff. And he gets up to this some kind of temple. And there are these old mutant looking leper kind of guys that are somehow the elders. Yeah. They're the mystics. He calls them, Wedham calls them the mystics. Yeah. And basically they're saying, Hey, you shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have made this deal. And he's saying, no, we got to unite and we got to fight them. And I have a plan that will lead them to this place where our superior skill and terrain can defeat them. And they go, no, no, we got to, we're going to ask the Oracle. The sequence is gorgeous. Yeah. There's this woman and she sort of wakes up as smoke from a brazier goes into her lungs. And you get the sense that she's in some sort of strange trance and she starts to move and the the fabric moves around her in this incredibly mm. strange slow motion way. Uh, you want to know how they shot this? Please. It's underwater. Yeah, it makes sense. That's what makes yeah. the fabric move like this. And as she's doing this, what we hear is that these old guys who are called the E4s or something like that, is that they pick sure. whatever the prettiest young adolescent girl is and drug them up and pretty much sounds like rape and abuse them and turn them yep. into these oracles. And she says there's some big religious festival or something where we're not we're forbidden to have war. And basically she reaffirms that and that we shouldn't go to war. Um, and one of the old guys licks her. It's just nasty. Yeah. That was a Zack Snyder idea, of course. And so Leonidas leaves, and then we see Gold, and there's Dominic West, who's sort of the bad guy, and he's with this big Persian guy, and what we get is, oh, the old guys got bribed by the Persians. Yep. Didn't stop him from licking the girl, though. No. Yeah. yeah. Nasty. Wow. Once again, hyper-masculinity, right? This idea that these older men would take a young, nubile woman and use her up the way they do. Uh, and, and, you know, that just speaks to this kind of hyper-masculine, oh, man, I'm going to do what he wants, you know. But they're villains. They're villains, but it's still a hyper-masculine approach to it. We're back at the castle or his home, and Leonidas is naked looking out of the windows, and and uh, his wife wakes up. And then they talk about 
what he should do. Legally, he shouldn't do anything because the elders have said, you can't do this. So that is why my king loses sleep and is forced from the warmth of his bed? There's only one woman's words that should affect the mood of my husband. Those are mine. That's where, to your point, that this is a really strong character who we like a lot. Yes, it's an equal relationship. It's an she go. He goes to her for counsel. It's an equal relationship. For all the criticisms the film can take, and I totally understand them, this relationship is very 50-50 between them. Uh, and he never talks down to her. He never dismisses her. He never, like, uh, disregards her. You know, it's, it's a very strong relationship, which carries over into the sequel, but less said about that, the better. Uh, I never saw it. I had actually forgotten there was yeah, a sequel. Nor should you. Um, nor should um, you. By the way, that is reflective of uh, actual, that's historically accurate, is that in, in terms of the ancient world, uh-huh. Spartan women were more free, had more agency and more power and were treated more equally than most other places. That doesn't mean they were treated equally, but more so. It is not a question of what a Spartan citizen should do, nor a husband, nor a king. Instead, ask yourself, my dearest love, what should a free man do? That's the sentence that gets him over the edge. And then they make love. It's beautifully filmed. Yes. Um, Karen, I wish we were watching it together, and she had an interesting comment about this, which is that she said it's still doing a thing of objectifying a woman in a specific way, which is that what she said is all of the shots of pleasure in the sex scene Mm. are of her, not of him. And that that makes it uneven in this way. You know what I mean? And that, that I was like, you know, totally, totally good point. And he goes off to see his troops in, uh, uh, they're in a wheat field. And this is, again, this is all green screen. There's like 10 feet of wheat around them. And everything off in the distance is is all CG. And what they did was they continually reuse sets. So this particular set has kind of a mound. So it's it's low in one area and rises up. They use this over and over and over again. Anytime anyone goes up a little hill, it's on this set. And all they do is they just redress it or have it shoot it at a different angle or have them come down the hill instead of up the hill. And we and 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 all of this had to be figured out and visualized in advance. And the set decorator and art department had to figure out how to redress the same set over and over and over again. And they had to figure out how it was going to fit in with the backgrounds that they're creating. It's so complicated. And it takes pre-visualizing in your mind what a film is going to be is really, really hard. And doing it like this, I can't even imagine how hard it was to make all this work. Yeah. Um, and we have our 300 Spartans assembled. They all look awesome. And we see that there's this young guy, which is the captain's son. And there's some looks between them. And then here come the elders who say, whoa, whoa, whoa. We said you weren't going to go. And I love Gerard Butler who just goes, I'm here just taking a stroll, stretching my legs. These uh, 300 men are my personal bodyguard. <laughs> Where are you going to walk? Oh, I don't know. I hadn't even thought about it. Maybe north. Maybe North. <laughs> the hot gates, you son of a yeah. bitch. Um, and, uh, and, by, so, and the troops start to take off. And by the way, this is a perfect example of how they're using the set. Is you see the 300 kind of go over a hill and they go down a little bit. And what they actually did was as they went down, they all just ducked and hid. And then you see them going up the hill in the background. That's all CG. Those are not real people. <laughs> Brilliant. And he goes up to see his wife and there's just long, you know, looks between them and they nod and she she takes off this necklace, which has like a wolf tooth, which is from the wolf that he killed. Yeah. 
And she puts it around his neck and there's just a look and he starts to go and then she calls him back. Spartan. Yes, Melody. Come back with your shield. Or on it. Yeah. This is something Lindley says to me. Yeah, go she, ahead. Wait, this is something Lindley says to you? <laughs> so right for every Schmodown match. <laughs> Essentially same thing. <laughs> I didn't shower and put makeup on for you to lose. So it's basically <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, that's amazing. <laughs> um, apparently, this is uh, this is stuff out of Herodotus, and according to Herodotus, what Leonidas said to her is he told her to marry a good man because he wasn't coming back. Mm. You know, mm. and then we hear some narration as 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 we go off. Here's one of the thoughts that really hit me this time. There's so there's way too much narration. It is so not it's really. Uh, I don't like it at all. Oh. Yeah, you and I are on different sides on this. I love the narration because I like David Wenham's voice. I like his voice too. So I like the way he, I like the way he sets everything up. He would want to say "I love you," but it doesn't exchange. It's too powerful to say. I love it, and then they go off and do whatever. So I get, I totally respect that you don't like it, but I think it adds a, an essential element. Well, to I think movie. in because a, a lot of it is right because he's filling in the holes. I don't think there were any holes though. That's my problem. Is that a lot of the a lot of the narration straight out of the comic, and the comic book is very poetic yeah. or the graphic novel and the way that it's done is that you know it's like we march we march through heat through rain blah blah and it, and and it it sort of fits with the graphic nature and the poetic nature but we re- this really goes into the redundancy of the nar- i totally got everything that happened in the scene between the, the mm. between him and his wife i understood it so having a narrator come in and tell me that isn't actually helping like i think you could pull out 50% of the narration and have the really good stuff and you wouldn't actually okay. have missed it. That's my feeling about it. Okay. And as the Spartans walk off, we see under a tree this strange figure who we're going to meet later and they're marching straight towards us. Man, the abs. This is some abs. <laughs> and they really, really trained hard for this film. Mm-hmm. They weren't just doing, they were doing a lot of martial arts training to do all the fight choreography, but then they were also just doing you know, four or five hours a day of just super hard training. And the, and what they did, it sounds a lot like kind of what CrossFit becomes, is that every day was a different mm-hmm. challenge. They continually changed how they did it to shock the body. And these guys, yeah. they really, I mean, there's no, yes, they did makeup on the abs to make them look better, but these guys are in great, great shape. Oh, and, and one other thing too, is like even the way the, I mean, Spartans wore armor. They didn't they didn't just wear like a, a cape and a loincloth. You know what I mean? They actually wore armor. But that's not what Frank Miller wanted. And that if you look at even the way the fabric drapes is uh, graphic in nature. It has a shape to it. And doing that in a drawing is easy. And that the, the linearness of it, the parallel lines that it creates, all this stuff. Doing it with real fabric when people are moving is actually hard. So they, the, the costume designers had to build... This, these these capes to look exactly the right way. I wonder if it's subconscious, Steve. Red cape, Superman. I wonder if it's the subconscious nature to it. All these are heroes going, you know, superheroes essentially going to have this incredible fight. I bet it's conscious. Like that's, yeah. I, I had totally the same thought. And we meet some Greeks. These are the Arcadians. And they brought thousands of guys to come fight in this war. We're like, hey, we hear the Spartans are fighting. And then they're going, man, how many people you got? We, you only brought a couple of 300 people. We got a ton of warriors. <laughs> and I love Leonidas here. He goes, you, what is your profession? I'm a potter. 
And he points to another guy and he says, oh, I'm a sculptor. And another guy, a blacksmith. And he turns to his men and says, Spartans, what is your profession? (laughs) (laughs) It's totally out of the Marines. And uh, and they hold their shields and he turns back and he says, See, old friend, I brought more soldiers than you did. Just the smirk in the line is brilliant, you know? <laughs> um, I really don't think they treat these Greeks that well. I think they could have gotten a little bit more out of these guys. And we see that hunchback again. Um, and his name, by the way, is Ephialtus. And it's played by Andrew Tierman. And then they see this city on fire. And this is not in the graphic yeah. novel. Because some of the things they had to do, the graphic novel is very slim. So they mm-hmm. had to fill out some parts in order to make it be a feature. And to me, you can kind of tell when those are the those are the weaker parts of the film. Um, and they see a footprint that looks not quite human. And then there's this shape in the clouds that looks like this giant figure. And it's really the shape of the immortals who are some of the bad guys we're going to fight later. And then we see it's mm-hmm. just a girl. Um, and she comes out and collapses into Leonidas's arms and kind of talks about the beast that came from the blackness. And then she dies. You want to know where, what gave Zack Snyder this idea? Uh, what? Newt from Aliens. Oh, that makes they sense. They mostly come at night. Right. Mostly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and then the question is, well, where did, the, where did all the people go? And then someone says, hey, we found the people. And we see them all looking at something. And the Greek, the Arcadian, is freaking out. And Leonidas says, Immortals. We'll put their name to the test. And then we cut to this tree of bodies. Again, that's a Zack Snyder idea. I loved it. I thought it was brilliant to give you an idea of the uh, ferocity and the barbaric nature of the army they're about to go face. And again, Steve, this is another moment of hypermasculinity because you have the Arcadian kind of freaking out, saying we should go back, blah, blah, blah. And uh, Vincent Reagan says, calm yourself or still your mouth or whatever. And even... Uh, Leonidas comes in and he's like, we're going to just calm down. We're going to see if they're really immortals or not. Like there's no room for the crying and the freaking out and the all being scared. There's no room for it because we go forward into the Um, it. I think it's visually so stunning and so powerful. Yeah. And this is the thing. Zack Snyder, as you know, is not my favorite director, but mm. visually he's among the best there is. Stunning. Absolutely. Stunning. Stunning. It's the yeah. story. And that's why I think this is my favorite movie of his because He's really leaning on Frank Miller for the story. And it's the story mm-hmm. stuff that he's not always as good at. Um, I know you said that the Watchmen director's cut is great, which I, I've never yeah. seen. I've yeah. only seen the, the non-director's cut. So at some point I need to watch that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, please Yeah, here's, here's one other thing I want to talk about, which is the, the Persian Empire. Because our portrayal of the Persians, and we're mm-hmm. going to see them throughout, is monstrous, barbarous, horrifying, mm-hmm. even like anti-human in a weird way like they're they're really Mm. portrayed as not human uh between the giant that's their king and the monsters that are sent out and the Mm. horribleness and this is not true okay and and (laughs) and like if you as empires go and i'm not saying i'm not defending empires persians were pretty nice comparatively Mm. like what their deal was when they conquered a country they said listen we don't want to fight you if you say you're going to be a part of the persian empire all we want is you to pay taxes, and occasionally we're going to draft some people to, for our army. And other than that, your kings, they stay your kings. Your religions, stay your religion. You roll your country however you want. As long as you pay us some taxes and send us some troops, we're cool. 
that is not what's being portrayed in this film. And this is one of the reasons that a lot of uh, people from the Middle East and people from Iran and really feel that this movie is filling racist tropes. I I don't I, I, I I'm not going to disrespect that point of view because Lord, Lord knows I've seen that uh, in uh, minority portrayals for many years in Hollywood. But I, I have I have to say every time I watch the film, that thought never occurs to me. This is a fantastical film. There are people with buzz saws for forearms. And so there's a large elephants that with earrings on them and things of that nature. So to me, the whole thing is not to be taken seriously. It's just, uh, you know, a fantastical retelling of this tale. Uh, so the idea that it's Greeks versus Persians, the Persians, I think I'm just like, uh, you know, there, there's there for every empire there have been, um, I don't know, char- mischaracterizations. Do you know what I'm saying? And so this thing to me is never, it's never struck me that way. And we do hear the Persians say, if you just kneel to Xerxes, you get to be yeah. ruler of the land. You get to, to so there, that is in the film. It's just not as powerfully put out necessarily as the first thing because the size of these armies are so large and the way the God King is portrayed uh, uh, by, I forget the actor's name, but the way the God King is portrayed is more of a aloof, uh, distant, untouchable thing. Uh, but I have to say, I never, I don't feel that way about the movie, but again, I'm not going to disrespect that point of view. I think more true lies. Those kinds of movies are definitely terrible for stereotypes of Persians than this movie, you know. But again, it's from a historical point of view, I get why it would be offensive. Well, in here here's the because I where I agree with you is that I don't think this is a movie that should be taken seriously. You know, right. like this is not a realistic film. It's not trying to be. It's trying to be a fantastical film. But exactly. here's two reasons, two things I would bring up. Is that so? This movie is made in 2007, or is made in 2005 and six, and released in 2007. That's at the height of the war on terror, and so fair. This is mm. a time when actually there was talk of this is a clash of civilizations. It's us against the barbarians, and there is a narrative yeah. that exists uh, throughout Western history of East versus West. We talk about Western mm-hmm. civilization, and that Western civilization goes from the Greeks to Alexander to the Romans to the Catholics to the to the Spanish Empire to the British Empire, and that yeah, for sure. all of the the Mongols, the the uh, Celts, the uh, the uh, Vandals, they're all the barbarians, and it's us against the barbarians. And if you think yeah. about like if this had been a movie that came out after Donald Trump called, uh, they're sending their uh, rapists and murderers and there are these yeah, hordes yeah. attacking from the south and this had been a m- movie about uh cortez defeating the aztecs and the aztecs mm. or the incas or the mayans were portrayed as monsters and barbarians and mm. horribleness would you feel differently uh well i mean it's different context isn't it because cortez is the one infiltrating and invading their That's lands point. uh r- rather than this situation where they're coming in to try to, you know, Cortez would be the villain in that movie uh, as opposed to the in this situation. But, I mean, I take, again, I take the point. I absolutely understand the point. I'm certainly not going to begrudge uh, organizations or people who feel that way. I just don't think, I just, for me, I've never had that thought in my head. I've seen that way more prevalent in other sure. movies that have been racist and stereotypical towards uh, Arabs or Persians or people from the Middle sure. East. Um, so we arrive at the hot gates and we look out at the sea and there we see this shot of the of the Persian fleet 
and we say it looks like rain and then we cut to the storm and the destruction mm. of the Persian fleet and the shots again it's redundant are amazing of our guys in the mm. rain and Leonidas standing with the rain battering against his shield it just looks amazing <laughs> and the 300 are cheering as these ships are going down and then we go back home yeah. and this is a scene where our queen is meeting with some loyalists and we hear about some politics and that she wants to speak toward the council and he's helping her in some way. And this, I think this plot line doesn't work. It's not that interesting. Where it ends up, I love the final scene of this plot line. Mm-hmm. But the, mm-hmm. there's just like, I, this is not in the book. And I kind of like, yeah, I just stay with the 300 and not go back to this. Right, right, right. Um, the Spartans climb up a rock and look out. And there they see the armies of the Persian army camped out in front of them. And they go on mm-hmm. off into the distance forever huge army and the Arcadian freaking out and our Spartan who I think this is Michael Fassbender yeah starts to laugh I fought countless times yet I've never met an adversary who could offer me what we Spartans call a beautiful death I can only hope with all the world's warriors gathered against us there might be one down there who's up to the task Again, a little bit of history. We actually have no idea how big this Persian army is mm. um, because Herodotus says it was 5 million people. That's not possible. Okay. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and this is the thing is that everybody exaggerates, you know, their war stories, every culture. So all of our stories. Oh, of course, and Herodotus yeah. wasn't around. He's a couple hundred years later writing this history. It was sort mm-hmm. of passed down in oral tradition. And there's a guy that did some research and he said that if there was a column of 5 million troops in marching in, you know, so they're, you know, 10 or 20 people wide there, that column would go 2000 miles. That's how the five million troops would take. And 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 it would go all the way back. Like the, the front of the column would be arriving in Greece while the back of it was still leaving Persia. <laughs> I would like that. I'd like a little a little mini movie of the two dudes at the back. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> the, two, the two Persian guys at the back. Um, oh, man. I don't know if we're ever going to get there. <laughs> um, Anyway, so the numbers, it was a way bigger army than the Spartans uh, and the Arcadians that were there, but but it wasn't, you know, 100,000 to one. It was maybe a 500 to one or something like that. We don't, yeah, but we don't know. Yeah. Um, and another emissary shows up and he's on some big litter. And, you know, again, the Persians are portrayed as just monstrous and evil and cruel and weird. And he's whipping people and the Spartans are building this wall and the emissary is basically saying, look, you guys should just give up. There's no, no way this is going to happen. And do you think your pathetic wall will do anything except fall like a heap of dry leaves in the face? And then he looks up and realizes that there are a whole bunch of Persians embedded in the wall. And Michael Fassbender, who, by the way, is Stelios, says, Our ancestors built this wall. Using ancient stones from the bosom of Greece herself. And with a little Spartan help, your Persian scouts supplied the mortar. And the emissary is pissed off and he pulls back his whip in this really cool shot. And then Fassbender leaps up. This is a wire shot, but really cool. And cuts his arm off. And and Fassbender says, Go now, run along and tell your Xerxes he faces free men here, not slaves. And the emissary threatens him. He's like, no, you're not going to be slaves. Your women will be slaves. Your sons and daughters will be slaves, but not you. You're all dead men. A 
thousand nations of the Persian Empire descend upon you. Our arrows will blot out the sun. And here we get the line. Then we will fight in the shade. That's in Herodotus. Oh, oh, God. That apparently, I mean, that's what he says they really said. Okay. Um, he was there. By the way, there's this narrative about free men. This is really framed as freedom versus barbarism versus oppression. Mm-hmm. The Spartans were the greatest slaveholders in Greece. So all this talk, of the, in fact, the reason they could be this warrior society, it's very much like the samurai, is because they had all these slaves doing all the farming and mending and weaving and cooking and all that stuff. Mm. So they could just focus on right. being warriors all the time. And now we have um, our hunchback, uh, Ephialtes, mm-hmm. and this guy says, look, there's a goat path that it comes in behind. Um, and if the Persians find it, they're going to you know, attack you from behind and you'll be defeated. And he's wearing armor, he's got a Spartan cloak, he's got a shield, he's got a spear, and he says that his family fled Sparta because he was going to be one of those babies, basically, that was thrown out and killed. Yeah. And that his dad taught him the ways of fighting, and he show, and he wants to join them, and he shows him his spear thrust. And you can see that Leonidas kind of likes this guy. He smiles at him. Fine thrust. I will kill many Persians. Raise your shield. Sire. Raise your shield as high as you can. And this guy can't raise his shield. We fight as a single impenetrable unit. That is the source of our strength. And if you can't raise up your shield, if you can't protect him from, you know, from his neck down to his ankle, then you can't help me. And I'm sorry, you can, he basically says like, you can clean up the bodies, you can, you know, help right. the wounded, but you can't be part of my army. I don't know why he didn't say it's phalanx. It's a phalanx. Is that what they call it? Phalanx. phalanx? Yeah. yeah okay. um, and he's. I don't know why he didn't say, "Hey, why don't you go work with those Arcadians? You could totally be one of those guys," you know. <laughs> but instead, he just says, "Because he's a spy." Yeah, I can't help you. And uh, our hunchback does not take this well and screams at his mother and father and says they're wrong. And he throws the shield away. And this, of course, is going to come back to haunt our Spartans. But I will say this: this speaks volumes to Leonidas, like. Like you said, Steve, he respects totally. the guy. And he probably respects him because, you know, as much as a warrior can fight in battle, what do you do when the battle is within your own body? And he fought against his own body and the limits of his body to develop a thrust so strong. Yeah. And when you see the thrust the way it's highlighted in the movie, it's a damn yeah. good thrust. But unfortunately, he can't lift that shield. That shield is the issue. Now, uh, he could have also understood the fact that, hey, Leonidas was being understanding and un- you can't be part of the phalanx okay, good, I'll get rid of the bodies. At least I'm still part of the war as a Spartan. Uh, But his pride got the best of him in that moment. He throws the shield away, screams at his mom and dad, and then, of course, we see what happens later. Um, Leonidas dispatches some people to guard that goat path, and then they're standing there, and suddenly the earth starts to shake. Earthquake. No, Captain. Battle formations. And then we see the Persians coming, this horde of Persians. And by the way, in terms of color scheme, the Persians are always in cool blue, gray colors and the Spartans are always red and flesh tone warm colors. And and the first shot, by the way, the Persians all CG. It's only when they get close that we actually have real people. Um, and leader comes up on horseback and basically says, lay down your weapons and the music builds and someone throws a spear and impales the dude. That No one should bring a message to the Spartans. I just think... Yeah, clearly it's... <laughs> yeah. It's a big yeah, mistake. Big mistake. Um, and, Three times yeah. now. <laughs> and, and Leonidas yells, come and get them. 
uh, also in Herodotus. Oh, really? So let's break this down for a second. How can you write about a tale you were never there at and nobody else survived? Like I just, it's a, did you have some random Persian guy who walked up and was like, I'll tell you the story. I'll tell you what happened. Or is this all just like, is this like Henry V? Like uh, the way, um, I mean, I think when Shakespeare wrote it, it was at a time when they were in war or they were trying to like kind of feel this pride of war. Uh, and of course, when uh, Olivier did his version of Henry V, it was right in the right after or right in the middle of World War II. So it was a way to rally England into the battle and rally England that, to, to have strength in this battle. Is this the same thing? Herodotus, did he write this at a time to kind of give pride to the Spartans and and that situ- and the Greeks in, in this way? So um, I listened to, it's a podcast I brought up before, which is Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, which is, you know, this is oh, this yeah. is podcast where he'll frequently do a five-hour-long podcast. And if you think The Cinephiles mm. goes into a lot of detail, <laughs> or is, you know, somewhat well-researched, there's no comparison. Hardcore History is really, really serious. And he talks about this. He talks quite a bit about Herodotus. And Herodotus is really the first historian, as we think of historians. And so he, he, my understanding, again, I'm not an expert here, but my understanding is he's trying to be accurate, but it absolutely Mm. is just what you said. I mean, the way, the reason that the story of the 300 was told was purposely to inspire the Greeks to war against the Persians. And it is a story of of national identity. And of course, and, and you know, he said there are 5 million Persians that came and attacked. You know, this is just right. and you think about, you know, the George Washington cannot tell a lie or, you know, name whatever right. your favorite mythical. We do this all the time. And and this is mm-hmm. why it's funny. Uh, right now, it's just the beginning of Passover. And uh, and in Passover, you read the Haggadah, which is the story of Moses and the Exodus from Egypt. And one of the things and a lot, particularly we have a very, very old version of the Haggadah, which is there are newer ones that are very different. But but it's a lot of the Haggadah is is these rabbis sitting around talking about how we should talk about the story of coming out of Egypt. And and one of the rabbis and there's a whole discussion of how many plagues there were really because they said the hand of God and the hand has five fingers. Therefore, it was 10 plagues It's 10 times five. So it's 50 plagues, really. There's all this weird stuff in there because. You know, a bunch of rabbis sitting around arguing about things. They'll they'll get into some weird ideas. And and one of the rabbis says, "Listen, whoever whoever exaggerates on this story, that person should be praised." And that's an interesting statement because what they're saying is is we're trying to inspire future generations. And so if we exaggerate the story, that's going to be more inspiring. And so and but that statement to me makes you totally distrust the story's accuracy at all. And I think right. that definitely is at right. play here. Here comes the Persians, and our guys are in their formation behind their shields, and the battle is just super cool. Yeah, man. First, they push them back, and in unison, they open up the shields and kill a bunch of guys. Then the shields all come down and close together. By the way, these spears, they're all collapsible. And they have like a, a bungee cord in them. So when the, you spear someone, it collapses into them. But because it's got this big rubber band essentially in it, the tension goes up the more you push it in, which makes it look better in terms of the arm because there's resistance going on. Cool. Um, right. All the blood is CG. All the backgrounds, of course, are CG. Um, and then we get to, after a bunch of group shots, we get Leonidas's shot. And this his attack is totally amazing. Um, and the way it was filmed, which is really interesting. I think it relates to kind of bullet time thought from the matrix 
which is what they did is they have three cameras all really close to each other. One that has a longer lens, so it's more of a close-up. One that has a middle lens, so it's a medium shot. And one that has a wider lens, so it's a wide mm-hmm. shot. And they're all running at super fast speed, which allows them to slow it down for slow motion, but also speed it up by taking frames out. And what they're doing is they're going between the close, medium, wide shot, but it's all the same take. And so it gives you that sense right. of flying in and flying out. And he is just a badass in this shot. So mm-hmm. many cool moves. Mm-hmm. And man, doing a, it's like a 45-second long That's so hard for an actor to be perfect in every moment. And they train like crazy to do this. Yeah. yeah. Um, The stunt coordinator, by the way, is named Damon Caro. And he kind of said, look, we have no idea really how the Spartans fought. And he knew a lot of more Southeast Asian martial arts like Arnis and Kali. And so that's actually the style of fighting in this. It's not really, it doesn't really come from Greeks. But, Hmm. man, it's cool. They look thirsty. Well, let's give them something to drink. To the cliff! And they drive them forward and push them off the cliff. Another great, uh, beautifully well shot uh, in terms of cinematography. Just the set, just them going off the cliff uh, one by one. It's just a beautiful shot. It's badass. And it's right out of the graphic novel. And the hill that is the cliff that they're pushing them off of. That's the wheat hill <laughs> that they walked over and hid behind. It's the same spot. <laughs> and Brilliant. they kind of go, hey, we've had a good start. And they're all cheering. And then they look up and here come the arrows. And they do, in fact, darken the sky. And our guys get under their shields. And one of them starts laughing just like, you had to say we fight in the shade. And they all <laughs> laugh together. And then they get up. And Leonidas, in the most badass moves, knocks the arrows off his shield with his sword. And then suddenly none of them have arrows in the shields. The arrows have all disappeared. (laughs) And now we have our second attack, which is the horse attack. And they get in a phalanx. And and here's what Zack Snyder said. He said, you know what? We had to do the horse attack as a montage because we didn't have the time or the money to actually choreograph a huge horse battle in sequence. So there's a lot of really cool shots as they, as we have this horse, but they don't all fit together. And we knock guys off their shadow saddles and cut off horses legs. And these are a lot of animatronic horses. It's really cool battle. And then we go back to uh, to the queen and her son. And she's walking in slow motion. And this is where I go, like, why, why do we need slow motion here? Like, this is not, like, they're so hyper dramatic in this area that I don't think is as strong. And then here comes uh, Dominic West with his son. And she go, he goes, be ashamed something happened to him or you. Yeah. And they're like, oh, okay, I get what's going on. It's after the battle. Our Spartans are dispatching the rest of the Persians because we're not taking any prisoners. Leonidas has eaten an apple. Um, and then we hear there's another group coming and it's not another army. And he goes, oh, well, maybe they want to talk to me. And the captains go, no, no, you can't go. What if they killed me? And, and basically Leonidas says that would be the best thing that could happen. Pray that they kill yeah. me because that's going to rally the rest of Greece to fight. And now we meet Xerxes. Rodrigo Santoro. That's it. Rodrigo Santoro. That's his name. Um, Apparently, Xerxes really did travel on a giant throne that was carried around by a bunch of people. (laughs) This one is kind of ridiculous. It's mostly made out of foam, and it's uh, on wheels. Um, In the comic, Xerxes is 10 feet tall. Yeah. But that was kind of too ridiculous. And Rodrigo, our Xerxes, is actually the same height as Leonidas. And so they made him about seven feet tall. It would be nothing short of madness for you, brave king, and your valiant troops to perish. 
All because of a simple misunderstanding. There's much our cultures could share. Well, haven't you noticed? We've been sharing our culture with you all morning. <laughs> this is where we hear Xerxes is like going, look, it's not smart to go against the god. Imagine what horrible fate awaits my enemies when I would gladly kill any of my own men for victory. And I would die for any one of mine. And then Xerxes comes down, he steps down on people as his steps, and he comes up behind Leonidas and puts his hands on his shoulders, mm. looking like just a giant. And of course, what's really happening, he's putting his hands on like a green dummy that's short, and they're compositing in Leonidas. And he says, look, if you make a deal with me, that all you got to do is kneel, and then you can be the king, and you'll rule all of Greece, and you'll be wealthy, and all this stuff. Uh, just kneel to me. And Gerard Butler's great here. <laughs> You see, slaughtering all those men of yours has uh, left a nasty crack in my leg, so kneeling will be hard for me. <laughs> the, the disaffected voice or the overly, uh, you know, do things, the slow, slow motion Ted Levine voice, is that, um, is that a Zack Snyder yeah. thing? Or did, did is that in the book at all? Or is it, is it did Herodotus say no. like his voice was booming or anything like well, that? No, okay. okay. So it's his decision to, be clear, to make him sound like I have that. not read Herodotus's history of this battle. Oh, okay, okay, so okay, he okay. might say that. But but no, it's a Zack Snyder thing. And what they did, they just pitch shifted. It is the actor's voice and they just pitch shifted it lower. Yeah. And to me, it's just a little too much. And now he makes a whole bunch of threats. And says, you know, if you don't do what I say, the world will never know you existed at all. The world will know that free men stood against a tyrant. That few stood against many. And before this battle was over, that even a god king can bleed. Very Braveheart-ish to me. Yes, I was just going to say that. It's very reminiscent yeah. of the Braveheart moment. Also, isn't this another, This is isn't this kind of like a, uh, how can I say this correctly? It feels very much like another one of these gladiator, epic, uh, pseudo-homosexual moments. When he puts his hands, totally. like the fingers draping on the shoulder, it's very homosexual overtones in that. Just kind of, we saw in Spartacus with Tony Curtis and Laurence Olivier in the bath. It just feels that way. These epics seem to slide them in in certain moments. Well, and again, you know, I mean, this is a old school construction of what it is to be masculine. You know, and, yeah. and part of that definition of being masculine is not being gay, you know? And so, yeah. and th nice. this is, and I don't, the movie is what it is, you know? And this is where it's, one, one of the interesting, I was going to say this at the end, but my feelings of Frank Miller have really changed because mm. what has been revealed in the last decade or so, A, his art has gone way downhill. You know, the, most of his mm -hmm. stuff since the 2000 hasn't been nearly as good. But then also it's been revealed that he's got some pretty radical uh, political views and has said some pretty nasty stuff. Mm -hmm. And what's so weird to me about it is that when I read Dark Knight and you would have um, these newscasters, you know, say these really almost fascist sounding things. Or you would hear Batman say these sort of mm -hmm. fascist kind of things. I always thought that Frank Miller was commenting on that or satirizing that yeah. or creating, you know, like Marv in Sin City, like creating these extreme point of these extreme characters to examine them. And then later on, as I've heard more of his actual point of views, I'm like, oh, wait, was that what you actually thought? What is your opinion in here? You know, like, are right. we getting just a high, you know, it's a hyper masculine, hyper realized, not realistic thing. And you don't really feel these things. Or is this, are you talking yeah. your actual opinions? 
Right. right. Uh, we're building a big wall out of bodies. Carlos Persians high. But unless I miss my guess, we're in for one wild night. And it's the night, and here come the Immortals. Great yeah. design, right out of the book. By the way, you want to know where the name Immortals came from? Uh, tell me. I always assumed that that was what the Persians call, called their elite fighting group. Mm. No, the Greeks came up with this name because they kept killing them, and there kept being more that kept coming. So it was a Greek name. Yeah. And one guy comes out in front, below this huge wall of bodies. And they push the bodies over and crush the guy. <laughs> and then we just have another badass battle, except that th in this battle, we start to see Spartans die. Spartans start to lose. Yeah. And there's this huge giant who is actually a seven foot two tall actor or stuntman or something. Mm -hmm. And he's chained up and the immortals unchain him. And he runs out killing a bunch of immortals, grabs an ax. And uh, just after... Um, uh, Leonidas has saved Delius. Um, Delius sees this axe flying at him and ducks down. And again, we get one of those iconic shots of the axe cutting through the hair at the top of the helmet. Mm. Really cool. And then Leonidas battles this giant. Great battle. He's just, just on the edge of losing the whole time. I love the shot. He cuts his leg and then he drives a sword through the guy's bicep and he pulls it out. And then, uh, <laughs> is on top of him, drooling on him. Leonidas reaches for a, dragger, a dagger, slams it into his eye. The giant pulls the dagger out of his eye and is still attacking. And then he manages to cut yeah. his head off. Is this a good time to say that this film is a little bit violent? <laughs> it's a lot violent in the most yeah. beautiful ways. And this is the moment that we finally use those Greeks and they come in and attack from the flank. And now we wait, wipe out some immortals. Right. And this is what I enjoy about the voiceover because at this point is when he she he says um <clears throat> david when comes in and says and then the arcadians come in and they make a beautiful mess yeah. of everything and they're glorious to watch so i love the voiceover. that's great for me it adds to the element no i yeah. i love that too i think that's totally great <laughs> and then we cut to xerxes on a mountaintop looking down and this is a great moment yep. of voiceover too and a man who fancies himself a god Feels a very human chill crawl up his spine. Yeah, man. Total Frank Miller line. Frank Miller, he has a way of turning a phrase. Like one of my all-time favorites is Daredevil Born Again. For I have showed him that a man without hope is a man without fear. I mean, mm. there's so, I mean, he just, he's so good when he's good. Oh, yeah. Spartans are celebrating. And there's this moment where, hey, maybe we could win. Mm. Big score comes out. And now we have the ridiculousness of the attack. We start with, <laughs> you know, these uh, soldiers that are obviously slaves and they're being whipped to go into battle. And they say the ones in the back are yelling forward and the ones in the front are saying back and they get wiped out. And then and then we have the rhino attack. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, this is not not realism. Yeah, again, yeah. <laughs> and the rhino's wiping out again, Persians. Yeah. And and then and it charges and we throw a spear at it and we have that great rhino collapsing right before our guy shot. Mm -hmm. Um and then we get uh some guy, you know, wizards throwing, you know, grenades at them. And that doesn't go so well. Um <laughs> and they they all blow up. And then we cut to uh, Xerxes and the dude with the sword for his arms. <laughs> and yeah, he's yeah, he's ex executing uh, generals that have disappointed Xerxes. Right. 
We get an elephant attack. Yes. Um, with giant, giant elephants. I still don't quite know how the Spartans got rid of those elephants. That seemed kind of hard. <laughs> but they go off the cliff. And then there's a badass moment where the captain's son just fights really, really well. And we've defeated everybody. And he stands up and he makes eye contact with his dad. And his dad is obviously proud of him. And then his dad sees, coming out of the mist, a a rider. And he calls to his son, but it is too late. And the rider attacks. And we see the head fall off his body. And the body falls. Uh, By the way, this is done by just wrapping the guy's head in green fabric so that they could take it out later. (laughs) Reaction from dad is great. And he, you know, goes crazy. He goes berserker mode, wipes out a whole bunch of guys and then drops to his knees next to his son's body weeping. They have to pull him back screaming. And this is so funny because you juxtapose his toughness at the beginning of the movie. When he, when Leonidas says to him, your son is here. He's kind of young. And he says, I have plenty other sons to replace him. And he's no younger than he was when we first fought in battle. Uh, And here he is absolutely destroyed and watching his son die in battle. So it's an interesting character switch from the braggadocio guy at the beginning to the guy who's here in this moment now um, completely uh, unhinged by the loss of his son in such an unsettling way. And you really feel for him. I think this is... Absolutely. Because this this isn't a movie of sentimental emotion. Nope. And this is the most emotional moment to me. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a movie of testosterone filled hero heroism. You know, you have, and, and it's thrilling, mm-hmm. but it's not emotional. Um, we cut to yeah. what I can only describe as like the orgy dome. And <laughs> there's our uh, hunchback. And he is surrounded by quite a collection of odd erotica. Um, yes you know and he's obviously overwhelmed it's the dark web erotica yeah (laughs) yeah yeah Uh, Xerxes is there and basically is going look you can have every desire you could possibly imagine fulfilled all you got to do is tell me how to get how to attack the Greeks you will find I am kind unlike the cruel Leonidas who demanded that you stand I require only that you kneel. Um, we're back with the queen and uh, the, our bad guy approaches her and basically he says, look, I can, I run the council. Yeah. You need me. And she slaps him the, and he doesn't care about that. And he pushes her against the wall, choking her. Your husband fights for his land and his love. What do you have to offer in return for my word that I'll help you send our army north? What does a realist want with this queen? I think you know. And she takes off her clothes and he pushes her against the wall and says, This will not be over quickly. You will not enjoy this. I'm not your king. And the camera pushes it on her. Yeah. It's terrible. It's awful. Yeah. Yeah. But a woman's agency in a patriarchal society sometimes is just her body. And this guy is, of course... The, an evil dude. So how do you reiterate the evilness? You have him take the queen. Um, and then of course later yeah. betray her. And so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a way to reaffirm the evilness of yeah. this guy. Um, uh, our Spartans are binding up our room wounds. Our narrator is now we see him with the bandaged eye. I trust that scratch hasn't made you useless. Mm. Hardly my Lord. It's just an eye. God so fit to grace me with a spare. <laughs> 
<laughs> Bad ass. Yep. And this is when we hear that the Persians have found the trail and that the battle is over. Our Arcadian runs in. He's like, we got to go. And Leonidas smiles, gets up and yells, Spartans! Spartans! Prepare for glory! And, and the Arcadian is like, what are you talking about, dude? <laughs> no, we yeah, go, we're just going to die. It's just surrender or death. And he goes, yeah, you go, but spread the word. No retreat, no surrender. That is Spartan law. And by Spartan law, we will stand and fight and die. A new age has begun. An age of freedom. And all will know that 300 Spartans gave their last breath to defend it. And then up comes the captain who's, you know, been weeping this whole time. And there's just a really nice sentimental moment. I have lived my entire life without regret until now. It's not that my son gave up his life for his country. It's just that I never told him that I loved him the most. Mm. Really good. Mm. And Leonidas says, my heart is broken for your loss. And the captain replies, heart, I have filled my heart with hate. And Leonidas just goes, good, good. Yeah. <laughs> simple yeah. good. Um, and then he goes over to Dilius and says, who's like, I'm ready to go to battle. And he's like, yeah, and you're a great warrior, but you're even better at this other thing. You will deliver the story. So, uh, any message for the queen? And he reaches up and takes off that necklace, the same one that she put on him, mm-hmm. and he hands it to, to Dilius, and he says, None that may be spoken. It's a great line. Great. And Dilius heads off. And there's just a great shot of the Spartans on the cliff. Spartans! Ready your breakfast and eat hearty. But tonight, we dine in hell! That's my favorite line of the movie. Because <laughs> the way he says hell with that Scottish accent of his, Jar Butler, it's great. I, we died in hell. He, he's just chewing it. his lines. Just, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And yeah. you should. That's why he's Well, no, I think he, yeah. he nails this thing, you mm-hmm. know? And now we're back to Sparta where she, uh, our queen, is addressing the council. We think, oh, the guy came through with the deal. Yes. And she's making a good speech about how we have to help Leonidas. Yep. And then <laughs> Dominic West stands up with the slow clap. <laughs> you Just, know it's over. The slow clap is, is due. And, and, and it's obvious right away that, oh, he's completely betrayed her, um, which is just, yeah. just horrible. And and then <laughs> to make it even worse, she, he says that she offered herself to him and he, of course, refused mm-hmm. and says something horrible like, you know, if I were a weaker man, I'd have your scent on me. Ugh. Horrible. Mm. And she's just really pissed off. She goes to attack him. They restrain her. And we think, oh, my God, she's going to lose. This guy's going to win. And then she grabs the sword yeah. and stabs him. And this is so satisfying. This will not be over quickly. <laughs> You will not enjoy this. I am not your queen. That's how I get revenge. And as she pulls the dagger out, gold coins fall, and we see Xerxes on the gold coins. See, and this is the only, this is, Steve, this is the only moment where I was like, oh, this is a little convenient. This is where the line from, it was a little that he would just be walking around with a bag of coins from Xerxes. You don't think he would have, like, got found out by doing that? So I was like, it's a little Well, convenient. this is why I go, none of this is in the book. And this is, and, and the book, yeah. I think the movie was too thin. And they're like, we need to add, we need to 
To build it up a little bit. Maybe you're right. And I, because to me, yeah. like, uh, you know, a basic screenwriting rule is if you could take something out and no one would ever know that you took it out, yeah. you should yeah. take it out. And yeah. that's not always yeah. true. Sometimes there's just really special things that are kind of magical moments that weren't really necessary for your story. But it's like you could, once they leave to go to the hot gates, you could never come back to Sparta. And this would be a mm-hmm. perfectly mm-hmm. good story. Like, and I yeah. think all of the stuff with the queen is just lesser than it's not that it's bad and certainly the moment of you know her repeating his line as she has a dagger in him is awesome that's a really good moment but i just don't think it holds up to the other stuff we're back on the cliffs the our guys are looking out over the shot is again amazing and here come the immortal more immortals here comes xerxes they've knocked their arrows they aim that our 300 are in like a ball formation now which looks really cool with Mm -hmm. uh, leonidas out in front and again, they make him the offer. You, you still can come with me. We like your 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 courage and your. We admire Spartan uh, valor. And of course, we see that mm. Ephialtes is there now in a Persian uniform, and the the emissary is talking for Xerxes and says, "Leonidas, your victory will be complete if you but lay down your arms and kneel to holy Xerxes." And now there's this moment. And the camera pushes in on Leonidas. It comes in slowly. And we cut to the wolf that he killed as a young man. And the narrator says, It's been more than 30 years since the wolf in the winter cold. And now, as then, it's not fear that grips him, only restlessness. And the camera moves across the immortals. And then Leonidas lowers his head. And the narrator says, His helmet is stifling. <laughs> and so he takes off his helmet. And now our speaker looks back at Xerxes because they're all kind of going, hey, maybe this is going to work. And then the narrator says, The shield is heavy. And he drops the shield. Um, by the way, one thing about the shields I forgot to mention is they have different, the sh- every, all these weapons are plastic. They're all plastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and the shields, they had big ones and small ones because the, when they were in these formations where they had to block everything, they had these huge, huge shields. But those shields were way too big for the hand-to-hand combat stuff they were doing. So when they're out moving around and fighting, they had much, much smaller shields. Um, right now, we got the big shields. Um, and now Xerxes stands up because he's like, oh, this is, this is going to work. Your spear. And he lifts the spear towards camera and looks at Ephialtes and says, May you live forever. And Ephialtes closes his eyes. Oh, that's a great, great moment. And he looks at Xerxes, and he drops the spear to the ground. And we're going, oh my god, is he surrendering? (laughs) Like, this is crazy. Um, And there's this beautiful stream close-up of the profile of Leonidas, and he closes his eyes. And then we see the queen. He's visualizing her in the wheat. This is very gladiator-ish to me. Yeah, oh yeah. And we're back to Leonidas. And then he calls Stelios, who leaps out of this circle, out of this sphere of the Spartans, and steps on Leonidas's back and kills the speaker. Um, and now we go back to our narration where we repeat these ideas, but in a different way. He says, His helmet was stifling. It narrowed his vision. But he must see far. His shield was heavy. It threw him off balance. And his target is far away. And then Leonidas picks up the spear and throws it. We see it flying. We see its reflection over the stairs as it goes towards Xerxes. Yeah. 
and it catches Xerxes just in the mouth in like some piercing thing and draws his blood, which is what he wanted, said he wanted to show that a God can bleed. And then we're into a battle and the captain attacks and Leonidas attacks and we know they're going to die at this point. Yeah, yeah. And they're just, you know, arrows are coming in and they're fighting, they're fighting. And the, the narration says, the old ones say we Spartans are descended from Hercules himself. Bold Leonidas gives testament to our bloodline. His roar is long and loud. And he screams, but the scream is silent. We don't hear it. And the captain falls to the ground, eyes open. And he's next to Michael Fassbender, who says, my king. And they take hands, he and Leonidas. And he says, it's an honor to die at your side. It's an honor to have lived at yours. Leonidas stands. He gathers himself. My queen! My wife. My love. We're in a shot from behind him. He raises his arms, very Jesus pose. And then the sky is darkened with arrows as they come down at him. Great, great, great movie death. Also, Vincent, wasn't Vince Reagan have a great death as well in this too? The dad, he fights through those four and he gets stabbed by three Persians. Then a la Excalibur, the last Persian, after he wipes them out, he drags the spear deeper into his body to kill that final Persian before he dies. So uh, he gets his, he gets a nice little death as well for being by Leonidas' side the whole time as well. And we're back to the queen who's in the wheat field and Dilius shows up and there's no words. He hands her the necklace. There's a nod between them and he goes away. She takes the wolf tooth and his Leonidas' son is there and she puts the wolf tooth necklace over his head. And now we hear our narrator, Dilius, who now we know who he is, telling this story. He did not wish tribute, nor song, nor monuments, nor poems of war and valor. His wish was simple. Remember us. And we cut to this shot of Leonidas just impaled by hundreds of arrows. A really cool shot. Long I pondered my king's cryptic talk of victory. Time has proven him wise. But from free Greek to free Greek, the word was spread. Now, here on this ragged patch of earth called Plataea, Xerxes' hordes face obliteration! To Leonidas and the brave 300! To victory! And then they charge off to victory. And we have reached the end of 300. A lot of people cite the Battle of Thermopylae as the moment that Western civilization was established. Because because if they don't win the battle or if they don't rally the rest of Greece because of the Battle of Thermopylae. And by the way, where the Greeks really defeated the Persians, it was at Plataea, but it was also really set up by a whole bunch of naval victories. Mm -hmm. That's where they really, because the Greeks were much better sailors and a better navy than the Persians, and they wiped out a ton of Persians. Um, it, that's in the sea. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> it is. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Um, and, um, and Xerxes was assassinated maybe because he did such a j- bad job dealing with this little Greek nation. Mm-hmm. But if we don't win the war against the Persians, and I say we because now I'm putting myself as part of Western civilization. If the Greeks don't defeat the Persians, there's no, probably no Socrates, no Plato, there's no Sophocles, there's none of these plays, there's no Aristotle. 
And that is the, there's no Greek democracy, which is really the foundation for a lot of the ideas of Western civilization. And without Aristotle, and, and there's not Alexander the Great. And really, and there's an argument even to made that, that there's not Rome, because Rome doesn't exist without Greece <coughs> in a lot of ways, because so much yeah. of their culture came from learning about Greek culture. Mm-hmm. And it, it's interesting the way this final moment is written, because it's written as if the people in Sparta know that Greece will be the cradle of future civilization. You know what I mean? Which, of course, they didn't. Right. They, this is, I think, one of the first movies that really did big promotions at Comic-Con. Did you see it? Did, were you there for that? Yes, I was. And it was incredible. And being there to see it launch in that way, it was awesome. Like Because, like, once again, this is still, remember, this is 2008. So, right, when is, uh, this is... Uh, Seven. 2007, I think, something like that. It's right before Iron Man. So, this is right before... The MCU kicks off and everything. This is a comic book yeah. movie right before the MCU kicks off. So it showed you, because it did well at the box office for what it was, it showed you that uh, there was a taste for this. There was a, or a burgeoning taste for this kind of entertainment, and it was right before the MCU exploded. So uh, you could say they were a little bit ahead yeah. of their time. Or a little bit ahead of the curve. Huge opening day, $28 million. Huge opening weekend, $70 million. Gross $456 million worldwide. Has very mixed <laughs> reviews. And I think this is like the perfect example of what I would call the, the Rotten Tomatoes split. Which is that if you look at yeah. Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 60% tomato meter rating, which is the critics, and an 89% audience rating. You know, because this is yeah. where, I think this is the kind of movie that critics don't do well on. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, I mean, I've pointed out a whole bunch of things that are weird in this movie, but the visceral nature yeah. and the visual nature and the violence of the thing, emotionally, it just works, you know? And this is what frustrates me in, my, in being in this sphere sometimes is when I run into critics who look at these films and don't understand the context of these films or don't want to judge these films from a, a different context than like, oh, it's not Truffaut. Well, yeah, it's not yeah. Truffaut. You're right. It's meant for it's meant for a different audience. It's meant for a different thing. Does it do well within what it's constructed to be? And that's why I take every movie on a case-by-case basis with the perspective around it. And I've gotten into battles over this movie, battles literally, oh, into the over this movie because so many critics want to dismiss it as just, you know, um, air shop or bl- photoshopped and air airbrushed fun but there's actually really powerful themes within the movie this idea of brotherhood this idea of equality in relationship this idea of not being pushed around by a stronger force uh the idea of being a free man making a decision to defend your people dying for a cause you believe in there's a lot of great uh themes and 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 points being made by the movie in my opinion and yes it's air dressed with all this masculinity and whatever if we can tell a, a predominantly homosexual story why can't we tell a predominantly masculine or heterosexual story i think that's okay to balance it out yes i know it has been balanced in times past but i still think it can be valid to make those kinds of movies nowadays as long as you don't seek to um, I don't know, uh, undercut another uh, group of people in society by making your movie. So uh, it, it gets frustrating sometimes in that way. Um, this is, I, I'll sort of give my final thoughts, I think, which is that is that yeah. one of the things I believe really strongly in is that movies should be judged on what they are, not on what you think they should mm-hmm. be. Is that I, I didn't like the movie as much this time as I had watching in the past. And, and some of the flaws really mm-hmm. came out more for me but what's great about this movie is really great. 
visually it is stunning and it's stunning in a particular way that i don't can think of any other movie is the marvel Mm. movies they don't actually look visually like comic books this movie does look like the graphic novel this movie is a piece of visual art in a way i don't think any other movie is i think it looks remarkable i think the action sequences are amazing i think the full-on testosterone manly culture that they're portraying they do a great job with do i have some problems with some of that i do but like just like we talked about with a kung fu film or a horror film or a comedy is like yeah judge it for what it's trying to be and that doesn't mean you shouldn't be critical of it you're welcome to be critical of it but if you want to see a bunch of buff dudes have crazy fights against crazy stuff with amazing visuals this movie is great if you want deep, Absolutely. complicated, sensitive, balanced, littered, no, this isn't this. This is not that film. Just as you say, it's not Truffaut. Right. You go see Spartacus for that. <laughs> just yeah, kind of. I think it's just a fantastic film, and it's one I go back to a lot. I've worked out <laughs> to this film. This film is essentially yeah, it's it's a rock and roll film and a rock and roll historical film, but it does not mean that it does not have something important to say still within the film. And I think that's important for people to take away. You can argue the aesthetic and argue if it works for you or it doesn't. But for me, it does. It, it excites me visually every time I watch it. I have maybe 10 hard-ons throughout the movie. And that's basically the point of that movie. Uh, having having you know served in the military, it does bring out that primal desire to fight within you. And so I've always had that. So when films really capture that, for me, I enjoy revisiting them. I enjoy feeling that power, that strength and what have you, and believing that, yeah, if I was in a different time, maybe I could be a Spartan, those kinds of things. And that film brings you into that. There's a heroic nature to it. And it's not an epic while also feeling like an epic within itself. And I and I, I give it a lot of credit uh, for that and some good performances overall throughout and some great action sequences that stick with you after you watch the movie. Well, so that's what we think of 300. Of course, we'd love to hear what you think. Please visit us on our Facebook page. Do a search for The Cinephiles. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Stitcher. Please leave reviews on iTunes. They really do help us. Love to see your comments on YouTube. They're a lot of fun. If you want to support the show and listen to our Cinephiles shorts and a bunch of other stuff we're doing now, go to patreon.com slash the cinephiles. You can, if you haven't seen 300, go over to cinephiles.net where you can buy or stream this film along with everything else we've ever reviewed. And if you want to reach me, you can reach me on Twitter at SR Morris, on Instagram at SR Morris One. John, what about you? You can always reach me at The Roca Says on Twitter and on Instagram. And once again, please go and subscribe to my YouTube page, www.youtube.com slash John Roca Says. We just crossed over 12,500 wow. subscribers. Want to keep marching towards that 20,000? Would be great. So come on over. Great content's coming. Uh, also, a new Star Wars show is going to be uh, launching soon. So there's still all, all kinds of stuff happening. And Steve, of course, will be a guest on the Outlaw Nation very soon. That show happening every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m on the channel um and if you want to follow the cinephiles you can do so on twitter at cine underscore files on instagram at the cinephiles podcast and i think that is it for this week we will be back with a film which has got to have less testosterone than this one i don't know what it is but we'll see you next time for that film on the cinephiles <laughs>